Today's sermon text is Ephesians 6, verse 10 through 24. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 979. Hear the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having the and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that my words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, make your word a swift word, one that passes from our ears into our hearts and out from our hearts to our lips and conversations. You tell us that as the rain does not return empty, so neither may your word. And so would you help it by your spirit fulfill your purposes in our lives today? And now, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the the most well-known Christian authors of the past century was the British literary scholar C.S. Lewis. I'm assuming that many of you have probably heard of him. His fantasy series, The Chronicles of Narnia is loved by adults and children alike. It was made into a series of movies in the past couple of decades. Uh, He has a a book called Mere Christianity that's kind of a modern Christian classic, one that I hand out to people frequently. But maybe one of my favorite books by Lewis is his book called The Screwtape Letters. 
the screw tape letters is a, a book of imagined letters that, that Lewis says he just kind of stumbled upon, written by a senior demon, a man, uh, not a man, a demon by the name of Screwtape, written to his, his nephew, who's kind of starting out on his, I don't know, demon career, or whatever it is, uh, as he's given a new patient, is the term they use, a new person to go tempt, to ruin, and despair. And these are letters, just imagined letters from this senior demon talking to a junior demon on how to tempt this man. And in the preface of the book, Lewis gives this short quote that I think kind of acts as part of the reason that he wrote the book, why he thought to address something like this. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, being humans, can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, they are equally pleased by both errors. They hail a materialist or a magician with the same kind of delight. And I wonder if you're prone, as you think about this and even hear about spiritual warfare, if you're prone to either of those kind of extremes. Uh, We have some friends of ours who serve in Tanzania where there is... They're prone. People of the village in which they serve would rather go see a witch doctor before they step foot into an actual doctor's office. They they see the reality of spiritual things going, but they're obsessed with it. And I would assume, just my assumption, based on where we are and kind of who I know us to be, that many of us in the modern Western world are much more prone to the other side of that spectrum. To think that Satan and demons are the things that make for scary Hollywood movies. And if people come talking about spiritual warfare of any nature, that maybe they just have over-imaginative uh, imaginations. Things that are, that are running haywire even. This morning in Ephesians 6, I think God gives us his help to think rightly. To think soberly and seriously about spiritual warfare. We need... We need to take seriously the real threat of a spiritual enemy that we face. And we need to face this enemy with confidence. Not with fear and trembling, not thinking that the battle is ours to do, but with confidence, knowing that Christ has already fought. So the main point of our passage this morning, you'll find it there on your note sheet, it's this, the Christian life is war. The Christian life is war. So take up God's armor to stand firm and advance against our spiritual enemy. You'll see if you got a note sheet on your way in, you'll see that we're going to talk about this kind of in four main points. And you can think about these points as battle cries if you want to kind of carry on the the warlike imagery. So our, our commander, Christ, calls to us four different things. Stand firm. Take up the armor of God, advance, and victory. And I will tell you, if you get nervous, like midway through the second point, this is going to be a two-hour sermon. The first two points are a lot longer than the second two, so don't fright, uh, don't get worried if we're there. Kids, if you're listening to the sermon, reading the text, just looking through your Bible, I've got three questions. If they're on your note sheet, if you didn't grab one, you can look on your parents and just find three questions I want you to be listening for in this sermon. Okay, three questions. Who are we fighting against? 
who is on our side. And then we'll spend a lot of time talking about what weapons has God given to us for this battle. And my prayer for us is that as we listen to God's word, as we hear it, that it would seep into our hearts and our minds, even into our actions, that we would, with courage, follow our Savior Christ into battle, knowing ultimately that he has victory, and we have victory in him. Now, obviously, this is the last sermon in our series in Ephesians, and Paul, in many ways, this, a lot of people would say, this is the climax of the book. A lot of stuff that has come before kind of builds up to what Paul is saying here. Okay, so at the very beginning, at the outset of the book, Paul tells us that God's people have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. So Jesus, the crucified and risen king, has been elevated to a place where specifically, Paul says he's not just over the church, but every spiritual power, every possible enemy in the universe is underneath his feet. And now he says, you who belong to Christ, you who once, this is chapter 2, verse 2, if you want to go back and look at it, you who once followed the prince of the power of the air and were in bondage to him, you've been now united to Jesus. And so if Jesus has victory over these spiritual enemies, you, as a part of his body, are walking with him. You do not have to follow the prince of the power of the air anymore. You have freedom to follow Christ, to live in light of him. And that's what the last couple chapters have been looking at. But that freedom to obey and to follow Christ doesn't mean that it's easy. Just ask somebody who's been a Christian for longer than you. If you're a new Christian and you think this is an easy journey, find somebody who's been a Christian for decades and just ask if it's simple. And that's why Paul gives us this first charge, why Christ tells us in verses 10 through 13 to stand firm, stand firm. You heard it four different times in the first four, uh, four or five verses of this passage. We need to stand firm. And this command is necessary because we face a tenacious enemy. Kids, maybe, maybe you've played in the backyard. You like to play dress up and so you're a pirate or a ninja or just a soldier and you get your siblings or some friends in the neighborhood to come have a big pretend battle in the backyard. Uh, we grow out of that. Eventually a lot of us do at least. And, and so you start doing things like playing sports. You have soccer matches where you're battling against an opponent. You, you have swim meets and taekwondo sparring matches. But at the very end of that match, you turn to your opponent and you bow or you shake hands or you high five. Because you finish kind of the make-believe battle in your backyard and you go get a juice box with the neighbors who you were just mortal enemies with. But this kind of battle is different. The battle of spiritual warfare is different. The enemy is actually just as real. You may not see the person right across from you. But it's a real battle. But, but more than just wanting to win a friendly match, the Bible is clear. If you go read even through the Gospels, you'll see that Satan has an agenda to destroy you. Not just to defeat you, but to ultimately lead you to eternal death. And the devil is not alone in that campaign. 
Again, you can just read the Gospels and see this over and over, but think specifically about maybe Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, Jesus goes to a man who is possessed by a demon, and he talks to the demon. He says, what is your name? And the demon's response is, my name is Legion, for we are many. And even in our passage today, we see that there are rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil. All of these scheming, plotting, planning on how to destroy God's people. And that word scheme in verse 11, they used to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. That tells us that the cartoon image you have of a devil sitting on your shoulder and being kind of the humorous sidekick, that's not real. And actually, I think Satan delights in that kind of image because it means we don't take him seriously. Now, he is crafty and persistent. Uh, one of the classic books by the Puritans, a man named Thomas Brooks, he has this book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Uh, I'd recommend it if you want to kind of meditate on this, on Satan scheming against you and thinking about what that looks like and how to fight that. It's a, a wonderful book for that. But he, he thinks through and just kind of meditates 38 different ways. How is it that Satan could be tempting me? 38 ways he says he could be scheming. So Satan tempts people to persuade them. You know what? Repentance is really easy. It's, it's simple to just turn around from your sin. So don't worry about sinning that much. Satan will tempt you to say that, you know, I, I think that all of the good things I see out there in the world, Satan will show you all of the good. But it's false advertising because hidden inside the bait is the hook of the costs. Satan will tempt you, Christian, to doubt and question your salvation, telling you the good fruit you see in your life, all the gospel goodness that's kind of pouring out of life in Christ, it's counterfeit. It's not real. We face an enemy who is personal, not just a force, one who actually strategizes on how he can ensnare each and every one of us. And if you want to maybe put some of this in practice and think about how do I apply this, I just wonder, have you ever, have you ever sat and thought, how does Satan strategize against me? If you like, if you want a creative writing assignment, just think about those screw tape letters. I just encourage you, think maybe even this week, sit down and say, if I found a letter written by somebody strategizing to make me fall into sin, a demon saying, how can I make Ryan sin? When is he most vulnerable? What are the lies that he believes? What might that say? I think if you give some time to think about that, about how, how Satan strategizes against you, that actually can prepare us the next time you find the serpent whispering lies in your ears. Brothers and sisters, our enemy is tenacious. We, we sang earlier, his craft and his power are great. And armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Our greatest enemy is not some uh, organization out there. Not the people who are fighting against you in your head. It's the enemy of Satan and his minions fighting to take you to hell. And if you want to stand firm against an enemy of this magnitude, there is one and only one hope. And it's that we stand firm in the Lord and in the strength 
of his might. We fight a spiritual enemy. But remember, we said earlier, even at the very beginning of the letter, Ephesians 1 verse 3, we are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God in Christ was not surprised that he has an enemy. And he has given you what you need to face the battle. All of that is there in Christ. And more than just having the armor of God, which we will talk about in a minute, we actually belong to the man who has fought this battle and who has already won perfectly. Christ Jesus was raised from the dead in victory over hell itself. And so we are told that he is now seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now, I want to paint a picture of the demonic enemy we fight because we cannot afford to underestimate him. But if that causes you to tremble before him, if you think we face that kind of enemy and we're hopeless, the whole book of Ephesians has been working to show you that the power of hell is no match for the God who raises Jesus in victory and who unites you to him. We are not unsure of who will win the battle. Jesus wins. And if we are part of his body, then you are equipped with his own might to stand and to have victory as well. Now, if, if you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, I'm, I'm really glad that you're here. I know that you probably come into a Christian church and you think there's going to be a message about love and joy and forgiveness and you've stepped into a sermon on spiritual warfare, which may sound almost cartoonish to you, almost like we are a bunch of crazy people at first thought. But just, I'd, I'd encourage you, just try what we're saying on for size, just for a minute. Just, just think, what if what this Bible says and what these people believe is true? And if that makes sense, think about, think about your own history. Or think about what you see happening even in the world around you. And ask yourself, is it possible that there is more to evil than meets the eye. That when somebody is abducted on the side of a road, when something, when persecution comes to you, that maybe there's more going on than just the person right that we see. And I don't think that you'll find our position all that crazy. And if that's the case, friend, if that's the reality, and we, we believe that it is, then we want you to know that you have an enemy plotting against you Two. And he is strategizing a hundred different ways, saying, what is it that I can say to him or to her to keep them indifferent? How, how can I grip them in shame and guilt so that they won't turn to Christ, to anybody? We want you to know, friend, there is a way of escape, a way of victory against this kind of bondage. And it is not found on like the bestseller list of self-help books on your Amazon wish list. No, armor for the battle belongs only to Christ. And you can belong to him and be clothed with his armor today. The good news of Jesus is that, that when we step to him and we say, you know what, if we come and say, I'm really strong, I'm good enough, I've got this, that's actually not 
what we're told to do. All of us, everyone here, friend, who is a Christian, we have come to him in weakness. And said, we, we can't fight this by ourselves. And we need someone to fight for us. To forgive us. And give us armor for the battle. And friend, if, if you have not turned to Christ, we would call you to do that today. You can do that right now. And if you do that, please come find me after the service. Find Corey or Kyle or David. Find any Christian that you know in this church and ask them how you can walk with Christ dressed in his armor for battle. So the the first battle cry from our commanding officer, from Christ himself, is to stand firm. We have an enemy who wants us to fall. But we can withstand his attacks in the Lord's strength. And that leads to the second battle cry. We're told to stand firm. And then we're told how to do that. That's what gets us to take up the armor of God in verses 14 through 18. I'm sure as you kind of heard that read, you could see lots of warfare imagery. You see images of shields and helmets, of swords, people equipped for battle. That would have been very common for people in Ephesus as they saw Roman soldiers walking around them. But but I think there's more than just thinking of this as like spiritual armor. Uh, that's that's true, but Paul calls it the armor of, of God. And that's, I think, because in, in the book of Isaiah... We're told that the Lord looks out and he sees injustice and deceit and unrighteousness. He sees all of these things going on in the midst of his people that belong to the domain of darkness and nobody is doing anything about it. And so we're told that actually God himself takes up arms against these things. Isaiah fifty nine seventeen, the Lord put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Even before this, in Isaiah chapter 11, that's a a passage that many of us love at like Christmas time. We're told that there is a shoot that is coming from the stump of Jesse, a Messiah whose name is Christ. But if you keep reading down in Isaiah chapter 11, we're told that this Messiah shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Friends, our our conception of Jesus maybe can be like he is the cosmic cruise director making sure we're having fun, making sure our life looks great on the way to eternity. That's not the picture of the Bible. The Bible says he doesn't take up like the, the lay of just enjoyment. He clothes himself as a divine warrior. Our God and his Messiah have fought this before. God has taken up arms against his enemies. And now he holds out those same arms, that same armor to you and me. He knows what it takes to fight the battle and offers to clothe you in that. So Paul lists here just six pieces of armor that we need for this battle, thinking of this metaphor of preparing for battle. And he starts with the belt of truth, the belt of truth. Knowing our enemy, we should know that his native tongue is lies. He is the father of lies. He perverts and twists the truth. He will whisper to you lies about God himself. If God really loved you, he'd give you everything you wanted. He'll lie to you about God's people. 
He will tell you that, you know, if you actually turned to those people sitting around you and told them what you did this week, they would not accept you. He lies to you about yourself and will say, you're actually doing really good. Look around. Everybody around you has the problems. You're doing really well. You don't need this Christian stuff, this religious life. You're fine. We must be prepared to fight the lies of the devil with the truth. I know I talk, uh, you, you may have gathered this over the past several months. I talk about singing a lot. I like singing. I enjoy singing. But, but I think we, we take very seriously, David takes very seriously the words of the songs that we sing on a weekly basis. And that's because we want these words to like seep down into your bones. So like I, I probably couldn't tell you the points from my sermon last week, maybe, which is a little discouraging maybe for me. And, but so I, I don't expect maybe that you could tell me that. But I can, I can go home and be singing things that have just gotten to my bones over years. And so when, when you come and when the tempter starts lying to you, even kids, when the tempter lies to you and says the world is out of control, you should be very afraid. We can turn to him and say, Jesus said that if I fear, I should come to him. No one else can be my shield. I should come to him. Knowing and speaking the truth helps us to stand firm against the lies that you will hear from the devil. Next, Paul tells us to take up the breastplate of righteousness. Paul has said earlier in chapter 4, verse 24, he says, We put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So, so we're actually to live lives that mimic the righteousness we see in Christ. And if you think about, like, why do I want to live a holy life, you could probably come up with a long list of reasons. So I think almost immediately about having a life that is attractive to outsiders that says, I'm, I'm living a life that is following the way God wants me to. That's an evangelistic tool. Uh, we talked about relationships the past couple of weeks and how we say that living in light of the Bible actually helps us work with the grain of the way God created us. That he created this to work. So it actually leads to blessing. But here Paul says that a holy life, a righteous life, is meant to be a protection, a defense against the enemy as well. A life that delights in following Jesus is less prone to the temptations of the devil. And so maybe, maybe you hear like the belt of truth and you want that, you, you're, you just kind of are given to that, to thinking rightly. We want to say that thinking rightly and living rightly go hand in hand. That those, those are both important to have. Uh, it is true, if you think about like, I want, to, I want to help somebody come to faith in Christ, or I want to help somebody stand firm. You can do that by strengthening your mind. Know the truth. Ground yourself in that. A hundred percent. Yes. But have you ever seen how that can work its way backwards as well. Uh, there, there was a man by the name of Aldous Huxley. He's most well known for his book, A Brave New World. He was a 20th century English writer and philosopher. And, and in his book, Ends and Means, he, he actually is bold enough to say, you know, I, I actually wanted to live a certain life. I'd started enjoying a certain kind of sin. And so I went and found a philosophy that would let me live that sin. Do you hear that? So his life led to distortion of the truth. If you live long enough in sin, you will gladly believe anything to justify your actions. 
So righteousness, living a holy life, fastened with the belt of truth, these things work together to protect us against the schemes of the devil. A life that looks like Christ will enjoy the protection of following in him. Third, we're told to put on shoes of readiness given by the gospel of peace. And again, this has echoes back in Isaiah, Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. We ought to always be ready with the gospel. The gospel as shoes helps us to stand firm against the attack of the devil, to know the truth, to stand in who Christ is and what he has done for us. But these shoes also are what help us to take ground against the stronghold of the enemy. Friends, the devil hates the gospel. We're told that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, and Satan actually hates anything reeking of salvation. And we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So as we think even about going out with the gospel to those around us, even as you think of people who stand actively against you, people that we pray for, we want to say that that those people may be the ones who are even most vocal against Christ, that in some way they are victims as well. That they've been blinded by spiritual a spiritual enemy. And while we pray for them, our hatred is aimed squarely at the demonic forces who keep them in darkness. Not at them. So with the gospel, with the good news of Christ, we go out and we are constantly ready. Ready to advance God's kingdom. Calling those who are living in enemy-occupied ter- territory. Repent. Believe. Be reconciled to God. Now, in verse 16, Paul goes to the next piece of armor. This one he kind of elaborates on a little bit longer. It's the whole verse. He says to take up the shield of faith. Roman soldiers had a couple of different types of shields. If you've watched movies, if you've seen pictures, there's a few different ways that you can see this. So they have like a small shield that they could take into battle with them. It doesn't really protect all of you, but you can hold it here. That's not what this word in the Greek is talking about. This, this is more like carrying a door. Okay, so it's a, a shield that's four feet tall. Two and a half feet wide. It's made of two pieces of wood that are glued together. It has animal hide on the outside of it. It's got iron reinforcing the top and the bottom. And then like some clever enemies, I'm sure at one point were like, that thing's made of wood and if I shoot an arrow on fire at it, it catches on fire. That shield's no good. So these people learned that they would soak these shields in water so that they would waterlog this wood. And if a clever enemy thought, I'm going to wreak havoc by shooting a flaming arrow, a flaming dart, it would just go out as soon as it hit the wood. And Paul says that we are in that kind of battle. Satan is happy to pull out no stops and lobbing flaming darts at God's people. But God has given us his own promises. We have seen kind of the track record of God throughout Scripture so that when you think about the character of the God we worship, or His work, or His word, we can have faith that He is faithful, that He stand, we can stand up against Satan's attacks. And these arrows can look like many things. So Satan can, can attack with false doctrine. And he can tell you that suffering is a sign that God is not good. 
But the shield of faith says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and his mercies never come to an end. For, for some of our brothers and sisters, the evil dart that is shot at them is persecution. But the, the shield of faith can turn back and say, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You can be racked with doubt. Friend, you can wonder at times, is the battle for holiness, the belief in God and this life, is it worth this battle? And the shield of faith tells us that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We have seen over and over in the Bible, and I hope you've seen in your own life, that God is unfailingly good. He has a a perfect track record. He has never fallen down to keep up his word, so we can trust in him. And every attack of the enemy thrown at you to deny him, to not trust him, we can put it out with the shield of faith. Next, Paul tells us to take the helmet of salvation. Uh, In the year 1530, the Protestant reformer Martin Luther wrote a letter to a friend who was undergoing spiritual despair. Martin Luther actually wrote lots of things about his own battle with the devil and how he fought him. So, but this is what he told his friend, asking for advice. How do I, how do I combat spiritual despair that I'm feeling? And Luther turned and said, when the devil throws our sins up to us and he declares that we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made a satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus, the Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. When Satan flings your guilt and shame, Christian, When Satan reminds you that you do not deserve to belong to Jesus, you can agree with that statement and say you are right. When he causes you to doubt that Christ is good enough to hold on to you, brother or sister, know with certainty the work of Christ on your behalf is enough. The salvation that he has won for you is enough. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we can stand firm now, saved by the blood of Christ. Finally, we take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This short sword that was worn by Roman soldiers, it was defensive. You could use it to prepare and propel the attacks of the enemy, but it was primarily meant as an offensive weapon, a way to take ground. And brothers and sisters, when you sit down in your Bible, with your Bible in the morning, or even just like sitting here on a Sunday, I know even kids thinking like coming and hearing this again week after week after week, this is more than just us trying to say we need to do this to check a box off. What we really want to do is prepare you for battle. We want to make sure that you have the sword of the Spirit, the very Word of God, so that when you are tempted by the evil one, you can fight against that. And then even beyond that, as you go out into your neighborhood and your job and your family, you are moving forward to defend and advance. Kids, when, when we are, uh, we'll start core training, we prayed for that earlier, we always have like scripture memory that's a part of that for your age. 
And, and even adults, I want to just encourage you. Scripture memory is not just like I need to work on my memory so that it translates into better business practices so I can be a smarter person. It is because we think that that word hidden in your heart is a way to do battle for the rest of your life. And so when you need it, it can just come out. We need to be ready to declare the truth of God, to protect ourselves and declare it to those who are still in captivity as well. So with God's word, we defend and advance. And then lastly, Paul does talk here about the unceasing need for prayer for one another. This one is, is a little bit different from the preceding verses. There's no, uh, this isn't like take up the, the javelin of prayer. That'd be cool, but this is pray at all times. It doesn't mean, this, this is actually the way that we put on this armor. In prayer, we are declaring, we, we can't do this ourselves. We are actually dependent upon God to clothe us with his armor. And if putting on the armor of God feels like an individual thing, like I'm telling you what to go home and do for yourselves throughout the week, that's, that's true. You do that. But all of this, uh, this is a church matter too. This is something we're doing with one another as we speak the truth to one another, as we're even helping each other put out the flaming darts of the evil one. And here we're told that we are making supplication for all the saints. So even this past week, the elementary age girls in our church were up here at the church for a retreat in the building. And they learned to do all sorts of things like uh, make flower arrangements and embroider and bake. And those were fun. Girls, I hope those, you had fun doing that. I hope you learned lots of good things. I see nodding of heads, so thank you. The most important thing that you learned throughout the week was how to be more faithful in prayer. More important than being making good recipes, more important than doing good work at home. This is what we hope that you learn from this. On Wednesday, I was in my office and I heard pitter-patter of feet and a few adults come through and say, hey, we're just walking through the building praying for, praying for the church, praying for you and others. Girls, when, when you were doing that, you were doing spiritual battle. For, for me. And for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Kids, when, when you go home and you are praying at night, when you pray for your family who doesn't know the Lord, or you're praying for your mom and dad, Adults, as you're, just, as you're in prayer, you're in, in spiritual battle. You're helping us stand firm in the faith. You're helping us advance and take the gospel out. We do this together and we need God's help. So thankful even for the prayers we pray on Sunday morning. I think it helps us see why we have this prayer. I appreciate Corey's prayer even this morning. This is what, what John Piper said about kind of what prayer is for. And this, I think, even informs some of the ways we were praying this morning. We cannot know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. Life is war. That's, that's not all it is, but it is always that. And our weakness in prayer is owing largely to our neglect of this truth. Prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. God has given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. As we pray for one another that we would be clothed in the armor of God, ready to stand firm against the enemy, we are doing battle as a family, as brothers and sisters in Christ, linking arms and going together. And while the Christian life does mean we'll be defending from our attack, and we talked about that much, we, we also see that our commanding armor tells us 
our commanding officer rather, tells us that we're not just playing defense, but we're playing offense. We're taking ground, which is the third battle cry. Advance. Advance in verses 19 through 22. Uh, remember the context of which, from which Paul is writing this. So in verses 19 through 20, Paul is sitting in a jail cell. Like he's a prisoner. He says even in these verses that he is an ambassador in chains. But what he asks for, his prayer is not, would you pray for quick release? I got work to do out there. I don't like this. Pray for a more comfortable place to sit. His single-minded desire is to fulfill the commission of the one who called him, the one who made him an ambassador, to proclaim the mystery of the gospel to those who he encounters. And I love even that Paul sends Tychicus to tell the Ephesians how things are going. It's like Paul just says, he's going to actually encourage you. You're worried about me sitting in jail. The word of God is not bound. So I'm sending Tychicus so you know how I am, and he will encourage your hearts and remind you that even though I am here, the word of God goes on. Pray for him. It's his, Paul's boldness in this, I think, is a good reminder that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The gates of hell will not prevail. We are not just sitting back on defense. We are. The church is a missionary force sending out the good news of Christ to those who are still in darkness. And if you feel your heart lagging in this, I'd be happy to connect you with some of our mission partners so that you can hear this. You can talk to people here who are spreading the gospel amongst their family, or their friends, or their workplace. Or you can go back and even just listen. Go back and read some missionary biographies. Think of a woman like Amy Carmichael who for 50 years worked in India helping children who were escaping from Hindu temples where they were slaves. Coming to this woman who they knew, didn't know by name but just knew that there was a lady who loved them and wanted, who could tell them about Jesus where freedom was found. Think about Adoniram Judson, a man who worked for decades to take the gospel to Burma, where there is still a Christian presence over a century after his death. This is why, just as a church, we want to pray consistently for our mission partners on a regular basis. It's why we we say, like, if there's things to be done around here and maybe we could use more money here, we want to say we want to deprive ourselves of that and send money to those where we can say we're advancing against the kingdom of darkness in this place and in that country. And we want to pray that the Lord would raise up others who would go out and dedicate our lives to supporting those who do. Even in our own spheres of influence, we are equipped with God's word to advance his kingdom, advance his name. God gives us grace to speak boldly as we ought And there's one last battle cry here. It's where we'll close our time together. The Christian life here on this earth is war. Christian life here is war, but we're told that the outcome is secure. Our commanding officer, Christ, he tells us here, even at the end of the book, that there will be victory. At the end of a passage of a sober warning about the real spiritual threat we face, Paul closes this letter by talking about peace, about love and grace and faith. Paul is casting his mind to a land where peace with God and peace with his people is perfect. There is a happy home where the shield of faith that is heavy and that you have to wield carefully today, where actually you will get to lay that one down. There is a time when swords will be beaten into plowshares. That's what the Bible says. 
and where we will enjoy a love that is incorruptible. That's how the book ends, with love incorruptible that will never tarnish, never go from good to bad. Brothers and sisters, this life and this war may be very difficult. It will be very difficult. We sang earlier, the body they may kill. But the words right after that are that God's truth abideth still. And his kingdom is forever. It may seem sometimes like this battle will never end. You may feel like you are at the end of the rope and if you have to fight for another day, you're not sure if you will make it. But remember that this life is just a vapor. And we're almost home. So take courage. For this darkness shall break to dawn. Lift your eyes. We're almost home. You may think that sorrow and suffering that you're enduring, that maybe there is utter meaninglessness in that. Why would I be going through that? Can God make anything good come out of this? Even in belonging to Christ, you have encountered harm and hatred for his name. But remember, mine is armor for this battle strong enough to last the war. And he has said he will deliver safely, safely to that golden shore. Brothers and sisters, this, this is the call that we have in Christ. Friends, stand firm. Take up his armor. Church, let's, let's with joy and confidence advance against our enemy. And look forward to the day when we enjoy what he has won for us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that even though we know that this life is war and that we need to be strengthened with your armor, that you and your mercy have given it to us. Thank you for not leaving us alone, but for giving us everything we need. And Lord, we pray, we pray even now as we struggle. And I pray especially for brothers and sisters, even in this room, who feel tired and weary and who feel maybe even like they are close to giving up, Lord, strengthen their hands. Guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. Equip them to cast their eyes to coming victory that you have won for us in Christ. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.